The ropes of death were wrapped around me, and the torments of Sheol overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, save me! The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is compassionate. The Lord guards the inexperienced. I was helpless, and he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul. For the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, rescued me from death. My eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I said, I am severely afflicted. In my my alarm I said, everyone is a liar. How can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The death of his faithful ones is valuable in the Lord's sight. Lord, I am indeed your servant. I am your servant, the son of your female servant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house within you, Jerusalem. Alleluia. And on to 1 John 1, and that's on page 1119. 1 John 1, right at the back of the Bibles. Reading from verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, If we we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, 
Spirit of God. Friends, it would be great if you could keep that part of God's Word open, page 119, uh, and we're in 1 John. Um, just before I preach this morning, just a couple of things uh, just to let you know. We're going to have open prayer straight after the sermon. Uh, with the conf- like leading, we're going to lead into that open time of, uh, of prayer with a confession. Um, so just so you know, so as you're listening and you're thinking, um, you can be praying, you know, thinking about how you can lead us together in prayer. It's been a pretty harrowing week, hasn't it, for the world? Um, with the bombing in Iraq of those four little boys, the 298 people who, um, who died uh, on the plane, um, amidst all other things. It's a fairly full-on time to be in the world. It's a good thing we get to come to God's Word this morning and be grounded again in the great truth of God's grace and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I hope that this morning you find great encouragement as we hit this part of God's Word. The other thing to say is where we are in John, 1 John. Uh, the reason why we're in 1 John is because Paul's away. Uh, Paul doesn't like John. Uh, that's why we're doing it. Um, so um, Paul, Paul battled his way through... No, this is, don't tell him I said this. He, he battled his way through John's Gospel late last year and early this year. And when I said to him again, hey, let's do 1 John, he just said, I'm out of here. And so he's on three months long service leave. Um, no, that's not the truth. Um, it's a little bit of the truth. No, um, we're in 1 John. Um, so would you bow your heads as we pray this morning uh, and ask that God would help us to understand this part of his word. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are alive. Uh, Father, by your spirit, you are speaking into our hearts right now. We pray, Father, expectantly this morning that you would do that. Speak to us. Father, as your word has already been read aloud, uh, Father, we pray that we would understand it by your spirit. Father, help me to speak powerfully and faithfully by that same spirit. And Father, we pray that this morning you would speak to each one of us, remind us of things we already know, teach us new things that we are yet to know. Father, ground us, root us in your truth so we might grow in love and flourish as your people in this world for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Community. Community. Uh, being a community that is Christ-centred is at the centre of what it means to be a member of Church by the Bridge. It's what it means to be part of this church, Church by the Bridge. Uh, we are a community that is Christ-centred. Our little slogan that we have is living for Jesus, loving like Jesus. The centre of who we are is a centre of community focused on the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the rest of our community. That's who we are. And as we look at 1 John, community is going to be a big idea. We want to be a community that is flourishing for the sake of God's glory in this world. Flourishing by being rooted in the truth to grow in love. And this morning, we're going to go back to the basics, basically, because that's what John does for us in 1 John. He shows us what is at the heart of a community. And he shows us that we are to be rooted in truth, for growing in love for the good of all people and the good of the world in which we live. A flourishing community. And of course, community has been at the centre of the Christian church from the very beginning. God himself is a community. Three people, one God. Father, Son, and Spirit in a perfect community of love. Mutual love relationship is how we can describe God. He is the perfect loving community. And therefore, by extension, you and I as his people are to be loving people, to love one another and to love all people as God has shown us that in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Community has been at the heart of, of, Christian, of the Christian life from the very beginning because at the heart of God is a loving community. But did you know that it's also community is the source of ongoing research in the major universities around the world? The study of community is a huge feature in, uh, in, in universities around the world. Over the next two months, I'm going to introduce you to two key scholars in the area of community who help us to understand what it means to be a community uh, in the world. And these two scholars are about to jump up on the screen for you. Uh, the two men, is, uh, the first one is Professor Robert Putnam. He's the guy on your left. Um, he is the Professor of Political Science at Harvard University, and many describe him as America's leading intellectual. Um, he is a man who knows a lot about political science, and he studies community all the time. Uh, he's written two key works. His most recent work is American Grace. Uh, the, book, the book that's up on the screen is a book called Bowling Alone. He did an analysis of the entire state, United States of America to see how community had sort of fallen away. Uh, once Americans used to gather together and sort of do community at bowling centres where they'd 10-pin bowl day after day, but now they're bowling alone. I love the title of his work, Bowling Alone, analysis of the breakdown of community across the United States. The other guy on your right is a man named Dr. Andrew Lee. He's an MP in Australia, and he's written a beautiful book named Discon called Disconnected. Uh, he did his PhD under Putnam at Harvard University. He's come back armed with you know, all that Putnam knows, and he's applied everything that Putnam knew about America to us, to Australia. And he's done this fantastic analysis in Disconnected, beautiful book about the breakdown of community in Australia. Um, disconnected, get your hands on it. Both scholars, though, Putnam and Lee, comment that Christian community, the Christian community is a powerful source of what they call social capital. Social capital. That is, the bonds that are developed between a community that then bridge into the rest of community for the good of community. He says the Christian church is a massively powerful source of social capital. Good works that plough out into the rest of society. Bonding within communities for the sake of bridging into community. These scholars say that there's a direct relationship between the drop of church attendance in America and Australia and the concurrent drop in philanthropy, volunteerism, altruism in our world. You need to know this, though, that both Putnam and Lee are not Christian men. They don't believe the gospel. Uh, Lee, for instance, in his book Disconnected, describes himself as an atheist, uh, convinced by the truth or by the, the claimed truth of the writings of uh, Richard Dawkins and, and Hitchens. I think that's so depressing, to be honest, uh, to be convinced of atheism by those two men. There are so many other good reasons to be an atheist, not those two guys. Um, but Lee, an atheist, comments that his atheist heroes, Dawkins and Hitchens, have got it completely wrong when they say that the Christian church is evil and has nothing good to contribute to our world. In fact, the best thing those two guys say is that we could be wiped off the face of the planet. Lee, Lee does not agree with that claim. He says that his research says exactly the opposite. Putnam and Lee says that it's a powerful endorsement of our vision to live for Jesus and love like Jesus. That's a powerful form of social capital that we have for the good of the world. Community is really important. And 1 John, this letter that we're going to look at over the next eight weeks, contains some of the most profound and powerful statements about love, fellowship and community anywhere in the Bible and perhaps anywhere in the ancient world. 
Now flick over with me to page 1,121, and you see there this beautiful phrase, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. John, the author of this letter, writes this. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? There are several texts like this one in 1 John that build this impressive theology of truth and love and community, uh, that issues in a community of compassion, love and pity. We'll bump into all these kinds of texts as we go through over the next eight weeks. But John, the writer, writes all this against the backdrop of false teachers who are hurting the congregations to which he's writing. The false teachers were a really strange group of people. Uh, known as perhaps the Gnostics or a proto-Gnostic group, strange people. They had the strange idea that love didn't actually matter at all. Against all, surely all their sort of feelings and emotions, they had love doesn't matter. And as a result, these false teachers didn't believe that Jesus mattered very much. That you could just bypass Jesus and have, in effect, a relationship with God just by some other kind of knowledge or way. But see, if you remove Jesus... You remove the one who placed love at the very centre of the universe and community. You remove the one who gave his life on a Roman cross to die for our sins as the greatest example ever of love. So John's letter is in part written as a critique of these false teachers by laying down again, once again, the foundation of the Christian faith, which is the foundation of a loving Christian community. 1 John in particular, 1 John 1 in particular, through to chapter 2, verse 2, lays the foundation, basically three big foundations or big, three big roots in the ground for us to cling to as the foundation for Christian community. Three big truths this morning. The first one is this. Christianity is not about ideas, it's about events. Christianity is not about ideas, it's about events. The opening paragraph of John, 1 John 1 kind of bends over backwards to make this point absolutely patently obvious, that the Christian faith is not a philosophy, it's not a rule book, it's not just a random collection of ideas, it's all based and rooted in the truth of events that happened in real time and space. Have a look with me. These events were witnessed by many, including the the author of our letter, John, the son of Zebedee, the writer of John's gospel. Here we have verse 1 of our letter. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You pause there for a minute and John, the writer of this letter, has bumped in to Jesus, walked along the road and sort of just elbowed him as he's walked past on his way to somewhere else, smelt Jesus, touched Jesus, taken a piece of bread from Jesus, some wine from Jesus, sat with Jesus seen him, witnessed him, all that he did concerning the word of life that was revealed, verse 2, and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen, what we have heard, we also declare to you, says John, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy, your joy, may be complete. The basis of the Christian faith and the Christian community is a series of witnessed events, not ideas. And this is a unique claim 
This makes Christianity stand out as unique among the other religions of the world. Buddhism, for example, relies on the insights of Siddhartha Gautama Buddha as he sat alone under the Bodhi tree and had his enlightenment experience and then documented it all. But no one else was there. You can believe it, you can disbelieve it, but you can't prove it. It's not tangible, it's not historical. Hinduism, likewise, relies on one man, in fact, the, man, the first man at the very dawn of time, receiving the Vedas that came down, and he documented those and then passed them on. But again, by its very nature, you cannot test that. The first man at the dawn of time, no one else was there. You can believe it. You cannot believe it, but you can't test it. I don't mean to do this to, to sort of smash the other world religions necessarily, but this is just the way it is. Islam, Muhammad received the dictation of the heavenly Quran via the angel Gabriel, and he wrote it down, but again, no one else was there. You cannot test these revelations. By their very nature, their claims are untestable. But by its very nature, the Christian gospel is tangible. You can see it. It was bumped into. Christianity is tangible and historical. Truth is not an idea. He is a person. Truth is not an idea. He is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus walked, lived, had dirt on his feet, blood on his hands, seen by many, including our author. And this is the basis of our Christian fellowship, our community. Chapter 1, verse 3. We have seen and heard, this we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. Verse 7. Uh, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship. We have this community, not because of a collection of ideas that we share, but because of a series of events that occurred in time and space as Christ entered the world as God himself. Now, fellowship is, as we sort of brought out in the kids' talk, is a, a strange word. It's, I think it's a bit of a creepy Christian word, to be honest. Um, you know, no, we, don't, we don't see it anywhere else. We hear it, fellowship of the ring, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of style. But I don't I think I hear it anywhere else but in the Christian community. But it's a really important word. The Christian word, the Greek is koinonia, uh, the, Christian, the word fellowship means teamwork, business partnership, companionship, family, friendship, and they're all incorporated into that one word. Can you see why we need just one kind of word to capture all that? It's so broad and dynamic. But that's what fellowship is. It's a hugely significant word. Our community, our fellowship, it's not based on ideas, because ideas come and go. It's not based on philosophies, because they ebb and they flow. It's based on, it's an anchor, it's based on unchanging events in world history, in the life of Jesus Christ. That's the anchor of our fellowship. Unchanging reality, this unchanging reality that binds us together so powerfully. And the implication of this is, I think, is pretty obvious. Because of what we are bound by, not ideas, political persuasions or philosophies, but by events, you can get the weirdest bunch of people together in one room at one time. I'm looking at you. You know, have you ever been in one of those Bible studies where you kind of look around the room and go, how on earth did we end up together? 
You know, you're just clashing all kinds of ways. But what, what binds us together? It's not our political ideas, our ideologies, our fascinations about politics and philosophy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The events of his life that unite us together and allow us to transcend all those kind of weirdnesses that you no doubt are thinking about right now. We get together. We stay together. We're brought together by a series of real events, the life of Jesus Christ, events that demonstrate the love of God. That's not to say, by the way, that there are no ideas in Christianity, okay? Um, Ideas are fine in Christianity as long as they find their rootedness in the truth of the gospel, the the events of Jesus' life. But all of our our ideas flow out of that rootedness in the life of Jesus Christ, which then throws me to my second big idea, the second thing that unites us as a community, a fellowship of God's people. Uh, The first one was Christianity is not about ideas, it's about events. The second one is this, Christianity is about sin, not about ignorance. It's about sin, not about ignorance. That may not sound like a very cheery topic on Sunday morning, but it's critical for the author. It's really important. See, one of the subjects that's addressed in 1 John chapter 3 is that the false teachers were saying that sin doesn't really matter very much. For them, what really matters is overcoming your ignorance by accessing particular knowledge about God. That ignorance can be transformed by knowledge. Therefore, you don't need to be concerned about sin. Therefore, you don't need to be concerned about Jesus dying for sin. You simply require your soul and your mind to be connected to the divine by knowledge. That's the beginning of what we know as Gnosticism, a sect that grew out of Christianity in about the 2nd or 3rd century AD, uh, which we probably have here sort of a a kind of a fetal form of Gnosticism called proto-Gnosticism, where people believe you didn't need to trust in the, the events of Jesus' life, the person of Jesus Christ. You just needed kind of divine, kind of weird knowledge that was only accessible for a few by a few at a particular time. But see how John clearly states in verses 5 and 10 of our, to 10 of our chapter the importance of the themes of sin and darkness? Follow along with me. Now, this is the message, verse 5, that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. They're probably ethical, moral characters, that, characteristics, that idea of light and darkness. But if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and, the, and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, I think what John there is, has got an eye on the false teachers at that point. If we, have, if we say we have no sin... We're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see that? Sin, 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 unrighteousness, sin, sin. And then verse 10, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That may not seem like very good news right now, but let me tell you, it's actually wonderful. I'll get there in a minute. See, Christianity teaches that the main problem with humanity is not ignorance that's resolved by education, but that it's sin resolved by the cleansing work of God through Christ. The human heart is the heart of the problem. The false teacher said, no, 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 no. It's ignorance that's resolved by knowledge. It's very similar to Buddhism and very similar to New Atheism. 
But Buddha just believed that you could transcend, you could kind of get yourself saved, and salvation would be possible if you just kind of meditated long and hard enough on the noble truths and you received sort of enlightenment and you could sort of detach yourself from your sinfulness. Atheism teaches the same thing. God's favourite atheist, Richard Dawkins, basically says the same sort of thing, but his thing is not noble truth, it's science. He believes that we can free ourselves from all the... Sh- he doesn't believe in any moral categories, by the way. He doesn't think there's anything... That, and there's no such thing as right or wrong. But he says we can free ourselves and get to utopia because science will get there with science. But Jesus Christ, the exact revelation of God, claimed that we're all sinners. It's everywhere in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Jesus himself said the problem with humanity is the human heart. And as surprising as it might sound, this doctrine of sin is one of the roots of the Christian faith and therefore key to our Christian community. How? I put it to you. If you genuinely genuinely believe that you are a sinner like everyone else, you suddenly have the basis for relationships of equality, compassion, sympathy and love. No one puts it better than British writer, intellectual and relatively recent convert to Christianity, Francis Spufford. He writes in his great book, Apologetic, Unapologetic, sorry. He writes these words on the screen. So of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the simple reason there aren't any good people. Not that one can securely designate it as such. Again, of course, there are Christians like that. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or an affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things or in the same way or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognise each other. A league of the guilty. Michael McKinley In his great book, Passion, How Jesus' Last Day Transforms Our Everyday. Great book. Get your hands on both of those. Unapologetic in this book. But he writes this. The question isn't whether we're guilty. It's how we deal with that guilt. Do we seek to shift it, seek to work it off, carry it till it crushes us, or give it to Jesus? Let him deal with it and know the burden-lifting wonder of a clean slate. When you know yourself to be a sinner... You can show equality, sympathy and love to everyone who walks in that back door of our church, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done. Because you see in them what you know to be true of yourself, a member of the League of the Guilty, washed only by the mercy and grace of God and his Son. All of this is especially true when we look to our third foundation, number three, Christianity is about atonement. It's not about performance. Christianity is about atonement, not about performance. Not only do we think as Christians, including myself, that we're all sinners, you're looking at one, but we push it further to say that everyone is incapable of remedying themselves from their sin. You can't remedy yourself through education, through greater morality, through a better diet, through religious performance. You cannot perform your way into God's good books. Instead, it all comes down to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ as seen in the stunning, brilliant verse 9 of our letter. Have a look at verse 9, chapter 1. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he forgives. He is faithful and that God will keep his promise. And it's in the next page. God promised to forgive and so he is faithful. He will keep that promise. How can God, who is pure, who is in unapproachable light, as we've read in this passage already, how can God justify sinners like you and me? You know the answer, and it's in the next paragraph, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. John writes, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, I hope and I pray that you never, ever get used to that idea that you are forgiven in Christ. Why? Because God has taken all of your sin and all of the judgment and all of God's wrath that you were facing and poured it all onto Jesus Christ, his son. And he's died for it once and for all. You are forgiven, no longer guilty, washed clean. Never, 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 never get sick of that. It's a wonderful thing. That's what atoning sacrifice means or propitiation, that onto Jesus Christ has been laid all the sins of the world. Your sins, my sins. And we can grab hold of the blessings and the certainty of that by trusting in Christ. And as a result, we're not a performance-based religion. We're not a performance-based religion. It's all about the work of Jesus Christ. We're an atonement religion, which probably means we're not a religion at all. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We can't purify ourselves. We can't bear this burden for our own sins. And again, this is absolutely counter to all of the major world religions. The Buddha in the famous Dharmapada said that you have everything you need in you for your own kind of purification or your own propitiation, if you want to call it that. He writes this in the Dhammapada: By oneself is wrong done. By oneself is one defiled. By oneself one is cleansed. One cannot purify another. Purity and impurity are in oneself alone. Similarly, in the Quran, perhaps with an eye on the Christian doctrine of atonement, it says on two occasions in the word of Surah 6, every soul is accountable for what evil it commits and no soul shall ever bear the burden of another soul. Those two options are really attractive. They're really attractive ideas, aren't they? You've got it all in you. You can do it. Just put it to work. Try really hard. Man up. Sorry, it's a bit sexist, but you know what I mean. Man up. But Christianity says you can man up all you like but you're never going to please God. Christ entered the world, shed his blood for you that you might be forgiven. Have you received the forgiveness that comes through Christ? Or are you trying to work off your debt? If you're here today and you're trying to work your debt off, you can't. Do you also see how the text says that we have an advocate with the Father? This is beautiful. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. The word advocate there is like a word picture. The Greek word parakletos is a technical term for a defense lawyer. 
We have a brilliant defense lawyer, and his name is Jesus. Now remember here, 1 John is full of the theology that God loves you. So the image here is not, you know, God is off somewhere else and he's really reluctant to forgive you, so therefore we need a really good defense lawyer to kind of appease him. What the Bible here is teaching is that our legal status, if you are in Christ, is that you are fine. Fine. We have a, the best defense in town. We've got some great lawyers in this church. I know that. I'm sort of staring at a few of them. But even better than the people you're sitting amongst is this one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the greatest advocate you can ever have. So much so that we have his blood as the basis for our acquittal and our right standing with God. That is why it is not only faithful to God to forgive, but it's just for him to do it. Because justice has been done in God himself through Jesus Christ. I pray that as a church we know these foundations above all other things. Not just in our heads, but deep in our hearts and right into our bones. Because if you get this in your mind and in your heart, it changes everything. It allows you to relax. It allows us to just relax and not worry about putting on a good show and a good performance, be all performance orientated. It frees us to thank God wholeheartedly for what he's done. It allows us to sincerely love one another in the power of the Spirit. Because just think about it, just for one moment, think about this. If Christianity was all about individual performance, then amongst us in this congregation here today, we'd have high performers, also rounds, and perhaps some failures. At times you'll kind of peak, other times you'll trough, if it was based on performance. Friends, moralistic religion is the enemy of community. The foundation of our community is atonement. Not our performance, but Jesus' performance. Where you look at your brother and sister in the eye and you say, yep, I recognise in you what's in me. I'm forgiven, atoned for by the grace of God. Don't we have a great advocate? Don't we have a great defence lawyer? And so here we have in the very opening words of 1 John, a powerful recipe for bonding within communities and bridging into other communities. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, sorry, just called it love. Inspired and modelled on Christ's love. Empowered by the Spirit. Empowered to love. Let me conclude by just sharing you one brief story about a kind of one-man community inspired by Jesus Christ. 226 years ago, Uh, On the 2nd of February, the Reverend Richard Johnson performed the first Christian church service in Australia. He came on the fleet, uh, and Johnson was not just a cleric in the Church of Australia. He wasn't just here to kind of perform the services of the Church of England. He was deeply involved in the entire life of the community that was established here. He was known as the best farmer uh, in the colony and would share his farming skills that he brought out from the UK. He was at Cambridge, you know, university-trained guy. Uh, He was a keen friend of the Indigenous people here in Australia. He adopted an orphan child girl, adopted her, her name was Abaru, into his family. His first-born child, they named him after an Aboriginal name. Johnson would have made a terrible Gnostic had had he been believing that. We know that Johnson was a good friend of John Newton, uh, the former slave trader, who converted and later became a great campaigner for uh, the abolition of slavery. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, which no doubt you know. 
Newton gave advice to Johnson upon uh, coming to the colony. He said these words, never go down into the holds of the ship when disease breaks out. Newton knew all about disease breaking out in ships as they came out. But we know that Johnson ignored all that advice. And he would be the only one who would visit the sick and dying men in the hull of the ship. He went to them to minister to them, to love them. Listen to the official entry, just one paragraph on the screen from the Australian Dictionary of Biography about Johnson. Johnson soon became one of the busiest men in the colony. Apart from some help after 1791 from James Bain, chaplain to the New South Wales Corps, he carried out the clerical duties of the colony for six years. He held services, either in the open or in a storehouse, at Sydney and Parramatta, performed the occasional offices of the church, baptisms, marriages, churchings, burials, attended the execution of condemned men and worked hard among the convicts. One of them rode home amid the sickness and hunger of 1790, that few of the sick would recover if it was not for the kindness of the Reverend Mr. Johnson, whose assistance out of his own stores makes him the physician both of soul and body. Wow. That, my friends, is what evangelical Christians do. They love people, empowered by the truth of the gospel for the glory of God. They don't just play moral policemen. We don't just go around saying, we've got the theological solution to the sin problem. Johnson was a gospel preacher and a friend of society, a one-man community for the good of the community, bridging into the community. He was a physician of soul and body. He was a flawed man. He was insecure. He went through all kinds of bouts of depression and anxiety at times. But Johnson, despite this, was a man gripped by the events of the gospel, convinced of his own sin and that of others, but he knew the mercy of God's atoning sacrifice and was ever thankful. What about us? Imagine what we could do. Harnessing that social capital, binding, binding and bonding together in the truth, being rooted in the truth, to grow in love for the sake of the world in which we live, the parish in which we dwell, for the good of all people. With the same gospel, with the same heart of thankfulness, with the same atoning work of Christ that cleanses us from all our sin, may we, I pray that as we look at 1 John, we might grow together to be a church that is gripped by the gospel events. Know that we're part of the league of the guilty, but know that we're forgiven and sent out to the rest of the world to make a difference for God and his, in his kingdom. May God empower us to love deeply, mercifully, and to the end. Let me pray briefly, and then we're going to throw it open to open prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, you know that we cannot put our trust in anything that we do. Father, we pray that you'd help us to have faith in you alone. Defend us by your spirit against all adversity. And Father, please help us to be men and women who know your love so deeply, the truth of the gospel, that it propels us into our world, the knowledge of forgiveness for the sake of other men and women that we love. In Jesus' name, amen.